As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. We're in between the Catalan and German MotoGP races. Toby Moody here with Simon Patterson and Valentin Harunchi, and we're going to talk about MotoGP with your questions that you've sent in to us here at the race. We've got about 15 of them, so we're going to have to rattle through them in pretty short order. Some will be quick-fire answers, some might be a little bit too long, but we try not to dwell too much. So then, we're going to start at the top of the alphabet, shall we? We're going to start with... Adrian from Romania. Hi, guys. This is Adrian from Romania. I'm a big fan of the show. Uh, if Mark Marquez comes back and maybe he's not performing as well as expected, do you think that Honda will have the patience to wait until he, he makes a full recovery? Or will they graciously send him to uh, maybe LCR or another satellite team? Thanks and keep up the good work. Hi, Adrian. Thanks for your support. Um, I, I, it's Mark is at Honda, uh, at LCR Honda is not something that's particularly envisionable because, I mean, the only thing that happened with Rossi and Petronas Yamaha is because Rossi was 40 and desperately keen to, to ride on. Mark has made it clear he, he won't be riding until, until 40. So I, it's, it's, it's just impossible to see Honda cutting ties with him because he's its biggest marketing asset, first and foremost. And it's, it's legacy rider. You just, you don't ditch a rider like that what you might do is hire someone else who's younger and potentially faster which sounds like that's going to happen anyway and for mark i think if, if it comes to a point where he's not performing well enough for honda to justify having him in the work spike he'll himself take the decision out of their hands and, and walk yeah i think exactly that um there's so much more to it than just performance on a motorbike there's the, the marketability of Marquez and when you go to Spain and travel around Repsol fuel stations and see Mark Marquez's picture literally everywhere, you know, when you buy a certain amount of petrol in Spain, you can you can win a Mark Marquez model motorbike. That's the level of marketing draw that this guy has. Is that in liters or in euros? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully in liters with the way that the although if the price is if it's based in euros, you're gonna get a lot of motorbikes for your fuel at the minute, the way the price is going up, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, there's so much more to Mark than just his performance on the bike. Obviously that is a huge thing, 
But I think, like Val says, we're, we're probably going to see someone like Juan Mir slot into the other side of that garage next year. Someone who comes with a, a big pedigree and who I think can be very, very fast and will deliver them what they need again. And, and again, it's important to note that Marquez, even if he wasn't at his best in 2022, before before the surgery, he was still the best Honda rider. So that level, the Marquez level, will either be good enough to at least retain him or not good enough for him to continue anyway. So I don't I don't foresee a dilemma. Yeah, like arguably the 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 only thing that has prevented Honda from doing better overall in terms of team championship and constructors championship is the fact that Mark has been in and out of the championship for the last what two years and not the fact that Mark hasn't actually been performing reasonably well when he's there. Um he's still winning races, he's still a podium contender even if not every weekend then a lot of weekends. Um, and that is something that factories like KTM, for example, would give the right arm for at the minute, which is a bad choice of words. As Very bad. As for going to LCR, uh, he would have written into his contract with HRC that he would stay with HRC because then he gets the good kit. I know you can change bikes over and change bodywork in the matter of five minutes into the next door garage, but he will have written something into the contract. Uh, remember that contract is for huge money, long period of time. And uh, the penalty clauses, personally, I would find more fascinating to read than the number on the bottom of how much they're going to pay him. That would be the most interesting thing that I think we would all like to um, to know. So, yeah, <clears throat> they want to keep him. Bottom line is they want to keep him in orange with the blue down the side and keep the number 93. So that's good. Thank you, Adrian. Next up, uh, we've got somebody from Moscow, Alexander. Hello, Val, Toby, and Simon. This is Alexander from Moscow speaking. The question I have is prompted by two things. One of them being the contrast between Quattraro and um, the other Yamaha riders and the communication between uh, Aleish and Maverick during, I think, Q1 in Spain, where it seemed like Aleish was giving his teammates some advice. Do the riders from the same stable talk to each other about where their performances come from. Things like tire management, riding styles, and so on. Have there been instances where riders helped each other out? And if yes, can't Fabio hold a masterclass with uh, his trailing Yamaha mate? Arguably, this could improve the standing of the factory team. These are probably silly questions, but curious nonetheless. And while I'm at it, I would like to say thank you um, to your um, team. And I think the podcast is the best racing-themed podcast I have the pleasure of listening to. Keep those episodes coming and best of luck. Hey, Alexander, thank you for the question and for the very kind words about our podcast. Um, So where to start? Uh, What you saw in, I think, yeah, in qualifying in Catalonia between... Uh, Maverick Vinales and Alicia Spagaro is pretty common if you've got teammates who get on well. A um, bit of sharing data and information across the side, the two sides of the box isn't rare. Uh, it's something that we also see happening at places like Factory Ducati with, with Bagnaia and Miller who get on quite well. Um, occasionally you see it at Suzuki with Mir and Rins. But 
It doesn't happen every time. You know, most famously, whenever Jorge Lorenzo and Valentino Rossi were teammates back in the Yamaha days, there was a literal wall built down the middle of the garage to to physically prevent the sharing of data between the two sides because at the time they pretty much hated each other. Um, so it really depends on the, the personalities in the box. Uh, generally, all the team's data that's gathered will be available for everyone to see, um, but it, you don't get the personal touch with data, so you lose some of that. But on the Yamaha question in particular, I think that the problem there isn't that the other Yamaha riders don't know what Fabio Quartararo is doing. It's that they can't do what he's doing. When you listen to, uh, especially Andre Davizioso, this is something he's been very vocal about. He knows exactly what Quartararo does on the bike. He just just can't get there. Um, He can't force his riding style to adapt to what it needs to be. The, the reason maybe that we're seeing uh, Vinales and, and Espigaro work so closely together at the minute is that Maverick has been working on making that change now for six months and he's at the final details of it. He actually said after that qualifying session that if he hadn't made a mistake at the start of Q2, he thought he could have been in the front row because he's getting closer and closer. And that's probably more than anything where... Alicia's feedback is going to help him fine tune what he was what he's doing in the bike. Uh, obviously, they also ran together at the start of Q two. Um, they they give each other a toe, which is another opportunity to debrief afterwards because it means you can see exactly what the other rider's doing, share a bit of that actual physical observation from the best seat in the world, really. So uh, yeah, long story short, it's something that. Some people will do, but not everyone will do. And it depends more on personality than anything else. Hi, Alexander. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I agree with what Simon said completely. And just in terms of tow as the most obvious solution, uh, the problem is that Carter and the other Yamahas are never in the same qualifying session. So that's, that's a hindrance. Can't tow a person who's not in Q2. Um, it's it's a complicated one because would like a Quartararo masterclass, as you said, could it help the other Yamaha riders? I think potentially, maybe, but it's it's a situation where it might be, for lack of a better word, it might be a little bit emasculating for the other riders in question. Like would Morbidelli or Davicioso, two older riders who have both won races in MotoGP, want to want to be coached by Quartararo? Not entirely sure, but more importantly, just. Fabio has never seemed too bothered about what's going on on the other side of the garage in any of his, you know, in, at Petronas Yamaha, at Yamaha when Vinales was next to him, now at Yamaha when Morbidelli is next to him. He's friendly, but he's not like, he's not bothered and he's not bothered because his attitude is first and foremost, and especially right now, that he's got enough on his plate to worry about. Yamaha will have no leverage over Fabio to to request any sort of coaching for the other riders because Fabio will just respond Guys, I'm I'm literally having to push every single second to drag this M1 to where I'm dragging it. So don't don't harsh with my buzz. And Yamaha will know that's the response. And ultimately, yeah, I think he maybe could do more, but Yamaha would stand little to gain for trying to force him to do more. That's that's my guess. In all my years, oh dear, they're they're, they're, they're racking up. I suppose the partnership that I remember to be the most hand in glove 
on both sides of the garage would be between Valentina Rossi and Colin Edwards through the the Camel years, Camel Yamaha years, the Fiat Yamaha years. They just got on. Um, it worked between them. Uh, Colin ultimately never did step on the top step of a podium. He very nearly did in Assen in 06. Um, but it just kind of worked and Colin knew that Valentino was obviously the the um, the better guy to score the points over the season and Valentino would have helped Colin <clears throat> the other way I'm sure that Loris Caparossi and Troy Bayliss worked like that when they were at Ducati and there'll be others along the way that we may not have seen so hand in glove in the midfield or motor two motor three one two five two fifty whatever it may be world superbike world supersport bsb etc etc so yeah um when there's a good team spirit you can walk on water that's the point uh when people start fighting their own corners as simon said wall it down the middle of fiat yamaha there were of course different tires on either side of that wall uh, between Bridgestone and Michelin at the time, but uh, yeah, uh, that was a that was a true hate to put it that way. And the, the famous case of a, a relationship starting out cozier than it ended is Dovi and Petrucci at Ducati very very recently. So yeah, it's there's there's also potential pitfalls to having your riders work too close together, and then potential hurt feelings but that's maybe for another episode that's maybe for another episode anyway alexander super job super question thank you very much hi guys i'm claire listening from perth in western australia i have a question about the pre-event press conferences and the media scrums in general when a rider is announced for the pre-race press conference is that an invitation they can decline or more of a you'll be there thank you very much kind of telling a fair bit has been made sometimes from Simon, uh, this season of Marc Marquez being at every Thursday press conference, but does he have a choice? Uh, in some sports, there are financial penalties for refusing to face the media during an event weekend or after a race or a match. Is there anything like that in MotoGP? Of course, if they're injured, they'd likely be excused, but what if they just skip it because they don't feel like talking about how the race went? Thanks for all that you do. I love the podcast. Hope you... Enjoy the question. Cheers. Hey, Claire. Hope uh, Perth is treating you well. Um, yeah, you you might remember from a, a few years back the famous NFL press conference with one of the one of the stars, Marshawn Lynch, re- re- answering to every question. I'm just here so I don't get fined. That's you know that's MotoGP riders do not say that, but that's that's very much the case for them. Obviously, it is it is not a voluntary thing. Uh, the regulations, which I, I dug up, the FIM Grand Prix regulations. Uh, state that for the pre-event press conference in particular, there is mandatory attendance for the current championship leader and the previous winner, which in Saxon Ring's case will be the same person. So that's handy. And then Dorna selects who the other riders are based on. It says depending on their results, but also depending on the local market, I think. And there is there is a, a sub-article to that that says that uh, all the riders must be aware of the utmost importance of all the press, blah, 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 and that they should be fully aware that sanctions for non-compliance include financial sanctions and the imposition of other penalties. So there you go. Yeah, they have to be there unless they're injured. There is a there is a clause that says that if you're injured, you can you can request in writing that you don't attend. But that's that's the only thing you're injured or you're receiving medical attention at the time. You, you can probably negotiate other outs potentially. I don't know. But that's that's what the regulations say. Yeah, the the only time I ever remember someone missing a press conference, uh, 
because of an issue other than being injured uh, was when riders were at the Stewarts. Um, there was only Danny Pedroza and Jorge Lorenzo in the press conference in Sepang 2015, for example, because Valentino Rossi was otherwise engaged. Oh, anything happened that race? Um, yeah. It was a fairly sedate race, not okay, the major, cool. you know. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Um, but yeah, essentially the, 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 the unofficial rule that we've always kind of followed is that the press conference attendees are a mix of the top three in the championship, a top three in the last race, and maybe a local star or two. Um, which is, is kind of by and large followed. Um, and you are right in that my, uh, I occasionally raise comment about this on Twitter, Claire, um, because I think our championship tends to be a little bit too Mark Marquez focused sometimes. Um, and Mark seems to be in the press conference every week, uh, whether or not he's of any particular significance in terms of results or, or anything like it. Um, I like I, I mainly joke when I complain about it on Twitter, but it is nice to get the opportunity to speak to a few other writers now and then, which is why it's good whenever they do mix it up a little bit. Um, and it, it, you know, it's not like we don't speak to Mark Marquez when he's not in the press conference; he still does a media scrum. But uh, you know, I always like it whenever they throw in a Moto Two or Moto Three writer because it's their home race and they get a little bit of good media attention and a bit of coverage from the local journalists and, and things like that. So. Yeah, it's just I prefer it when it's mixed around a little bit. Yeah, I, I agree with Sam. It's not, it's not just the Marcus thing. I think having like basically the mandatory attendance of the previous races podium finishers, I think that's self defeating a bit. They already they already had their podium glow. They spoke extensively in the in the podium press conference last time out. I think all of us would rather see not just like home riders, but some of the some of the lesser seen riders giving him a chance to promote, but. Obviously, Dorna, Dorna has its own reasons for picking it, and it, it, Dorna knows who draws the the viewership and the headlines. So, yeah, there, there is an occasional other uh, other way in which we'll see someone thrown into a press conference, and that is if they've got something to announce. Like, uh, for example, the upcoming press conference on Thursday in Germany will be Fabio Quartararo because he's in the championship, Alicia Spagaro because he's fighting for the championship, Paco Bagnaya because of his recent race results, and Jack Miller. And Jack's not there because of his results. He's there because he's announced a new KTM deal since the last time we spoke to him. And it's a chance to uh, to put him under the spotlight. And it's also a chance for us to ask him questions without a press officer announcing beforehand we won't be talking about the future, which happens occasionally in media scrums. Not so much with Ducati as with Jack's next. Employer. Not so much with Ducati. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are others that... And obviously it's a German race and KTM and such like. Uh, penalties for non-attending. I mean, I don't know what they are now, but I suspect that if there is a a, a penalty, that will go to MotoGP charity. Uh, it won't go to the FIM. Uh, the only number I remember from the old days was 30 years ago and uh, Senna was once late for a press conference and he got fined $5,000 30 years ago. Um, and of course, as we politely joke, you know, motor racing drivers and, <laughs> and professional riders, they don't like paying. So uh, yeah, that was the money that was around in, in those days. So uh, yeah, Claire, thank you so much. So we've been from Romania to Moscow to Perth. Now let's go stateside. Hey guys, uh, my name is Connor and I'm from the southern US state of Louisiana. My question for y'all is, uh, who do you guys think could lead a MotoGP Riders Union? 
Uh, I've read the article by Simon on the subject, and I'm, well, kind of at a loss for who could do it. Both Mark and Rossi don't want to. Someone said Lorenzo when I posted about it to the MotoGP subreddit, but I think he's a little bit too, you know, feisty for that role. And while I'd personally love to have Stone in that role, since I'm, well, a fan of his, and I think he's got a calm enough head for this sort of thing, it's well known he doesn't like all the media and the politics of the sport. Uh, I'd love to hear what you guys have to say on this, since you're all obviously more well-informed and know more about the writers personally. And uh, yeah, that's it. Thank you all for the amazing podcasts and articles. I love watching reading them. Bye. Thank you for the question, Connor. Um, for me, he's going to hate that I say it, and I tell him all the time that he should be the person to do it, and he hates it, but it's Cal Crutchlow. He's opinionated, he's loud, he's outspoken, but he's also someone that's liked by pretty much the entire MotoGP grid. Cal has no enemies, he has lots of friends, and uh, I think that's the that's the main qualification for this role. You need someone who can command a bit of respect. He's been there, he's done that, he's won races, he's been at the front. Um, he is well respected by his peers, he's a development rider, so he's still actually current and that he's still on these bikes. Um, yeah, there, there's no one else to me that stands out as clearly as Cal does. I think the thing about a, a, a rider's figurehead, if I could call it that, is that they've got to be able to go to every race. And, you know, that's the kind of a, a Loris Caparossi person in race direction, race control, whatever you want to call it. They've, they've got to be able to be, in my view at least, across what riding a modern MotoGP bike is like. Um, but more importantly, they've got to have the faith of all of the other riders they've got to be uh, yeah the, the the king of all the riders and the riders have got to be happy with their king as it were uh that's that's the imperative point which i think would work really well it happens in formula one they have a they have a driver's union if you want to call it that and they the drivers vote who is their figurehead so maybe that's something to think about on two wheels there's actually the, the part that I would want to copy from F1 is so the GBDA in F1 it has one chairman who is a non-current driver Alex Wirtz and then two directors who are current in uh, Sebastian Vettel and George Russell and I think MotoGP would would be bright to to look at something like that to have representatives who are both not current and have enough time to deal with all the minutia and current and are able to like properly represent the current grid. I think for current, no, it's tough to say. I don't. I, I definitely have a look if Marquez wants it because I've noticed a bit a streak of governance from Marquez occasionally when he like there is there is definitely some weight to his words and he he doesn't completely shirk his responsibilities when it comes to it. There's well, sure, I say shirk his responsibilities. He doesn't completely shirk it. He doesn't have to do it, but he definitely has opinions on some things that maybe he wouldn't have to if he was completely egotistical and only caring about his own riding. Um, Aleish, obviously, as a current rider, that one makes a lot of sense. There's there's a few more. You have to pick somebody who's probably going to stick around for a while. And in terms of, in terms of non-current, it's just I would like the Cal idea is really good because it, like somebody who attends every race, although Cal doesn't, I don't think. But you'd have like a test rider who attends every race, basically. And you Stefan Bradle, then. Stefan Bradle is is a name that came to my mind, but I don't know how how keen he would be on that. So it has to be somebody who's there all the time, and obviously respected by other riders, but also somebody who has like a real, uh, let's say, socialist zeal in them. Even 
like a real union guy who really, really cares and will take the FIM and Dorna to task because that's what you want from a union leader, basically. The the guy who stands out to me actually from the current grid that would probably fit best. Obviously, there's no one that's as safety minded as Alicia Spagaro, but he is a bit of a Marmite character. But no. I think that second only to him in terms of, of sort of consciousness of that sort of thing, but higher maybe in terms of likability, Juan Mir. Mir, yeah. I, and he's an ex-world champion, so he's got the, the, the kudos to make a yeah. statement as well. I, I would imagine if you had an election tomorrow, Mir would probably be one of the guys who would feature very highly in the, the running for it. Immediately as you started speaking, and I was like, "Oh yeah, Mir. Mir's Mir's a perfect choice." Actually, I think that's the best answer we're going to go get here, John Mir. Well, it's down to those riders to put somebody forwards, and I'm sure that Dorna and FIM would would listen to them. So, uh, yeah, thank you, Connor. Good question. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24/7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to roan.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Hey guys, this is Dennis from Bulgaria. I have a quick question regarding the Yamaha development for next year. In light of Quattroro's new contract and the possibility of him winning the championship once more, even though it's looking like it's going to be much more difficult this year, do you think Yamaha will be inclined to give him that horsepower and top speed he wants? This has always been an agility and corner speed bike, not a top speed one, so would they risk ruining a winning formula? I personally think that they will be scared of what happened to Suzuki this year with the new engine and they're just going to say to Fabio, look, take these 15 million euro a year for your troubles, the bike stays more or less the same, go win again. We've been doing this quite successfully for two decades now against Hondas and Ducatis. I'd really love to hear your take on this. Hey Dennis, uh, cheers for your... uh 
questions and, and a question and feedback. Um, we've heard from Fabio about his extension, obviously, and we've heard from Yamaha about what it's had to do to convince Fabio to stick around. And I think it's it would be correct to paint it as Yamaha not promising Fabio more top speed because I, I don't imagine that's happened. And if, and if it has happened, I, I'm not sure they're completely committed to that. I'd be really, really surprised. But Yamaha promising Fabio more investment into the engine department to see if they can give him the top speed that he needs without compromising the rest of the package, which from what we've heard is exactly what happened. What Fabio referenced in, in talking about his extension is not a mention of more top speed or more power, but a mention of Yamaha adding people to the engine department. So, and then, you know, that's all, that's all they can really reasonably do. And that's all he can really reasonably ask for. So there, I don't think the bike stays more or less the same, but if it does stay more or less the same, then at least Yamaha will have the evidence and the feedback from its new engineers to show to Fabio, like, look, this is this is the best way for us right now. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we most regularly get asked is, are Yamaha going to become the, the the final manufacturer to make the switch from inline four to V4? And, and that would immediately deliver more power, but it's not going to happen because it means chucking away 30 years of engine development data. It, it goes against everything that they stand for, everything that they do and everything that they know. So the the only way to make an inline four more powerful, faster, is to do it gradually, because otherwise you end up with a, a bit of an unrideable beast. Suzuki have proven this year that there's a way to do it. And if Yamaha are smart, they should probably be looking to pluck up a few of those Suzuki engineers who are now looking for new jobs for next year and, and seeing if they can bring a bit of that magic into uh, into headquarters back at Iwata. Plus, we know that they're bringing in a few other people from elsewhere. Um, yeah, I think by and large, the, they will deliver something that makes Quadraro more happy. Um, I know that there's a test coming up next week, and I've heard some rumors that there is something special coming to that test, that there will be a, a 2023 package that's different. Um, so that bodes well, I guess. Okay, thank you, Dennis. So from Bulgaria, let's go to Florida. Hello, The Race. This is James from Daytona Beach, Florida. I am a big Brad Bender fan, and it pains me to see him finish seventh every single weekend. So do you think the addition of Jack Miller to the factory seat and probably Paul to Tech 3 as a quasi-development rider are exactly what KTM need to get their RC-16 back on track. And if it isn't, what do you think they need to do to become consistently competitive? Thank you. Listen every week. Hope you have guys have a good one. Okay, thank you, James. Uh, yeah, it, it is difficult to see KTM's race winner a little bit further down the order. They're not having a great season. We all know that wherever you're watching from around the world. Uh, it's obviously just fallen out of bed with 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 Miguel Oliveira. Uh, Miller will work well in that team. He's worked well with them before, as you know, with Moto Three knocking on the door of the championship, and he he will fit into their atmosphere, their nuances so so very well. Uh, managed, of course, by Aki Ayo, who uh, runs the Moto Three Moto Two teams. So it should, on paper, at least, all work. Regarding Paul. Uh, well, 
it's just not happening at Tech 3 at the moment. Um, if Paul goes back, it might be that the step up if he can get his head around being in a non-factory team. Let's see how it goes. Yeah, I, I don't see Jack Miller as being the solution to KTM's problems simply because Jack Miller's uh, track record as a development writer isn't necessarily an amazing thing. Um, but I, I think that KTM know what they need to do to fix the bike. They, they know where their problems lie um, and they just can't seem to get the balance between too much development, too little development, how many new parts to bring. They can't get all of that right. They've probably been more hurt actually by the loss of concessions than any other manufacturer we've ever seen lose them. Um, they're really struggling to bring new parts to a race weekend that work. Um, but but that aren't also, you know, so much that they overload what the riders are doing. It, they'll get there. Um, they're trying to chase the final quarter of a second. That's the, the hardest bit to find. Um, you know, but we've seen Aprilia do it. So I'd be very surprised if we don't see KTM do it. And I think this year is probably a blip on what has otherwise been a fairly constant up words trajectory since they arrived so yeah i i think we'll see jack go better on that bike than we're seeing miguel Oliveira go on that bike but it's not necessarily because jack is better or worse as a rider than miguel is it's just that things will come together again okay thank you james uh let's continue racking up our air miles shall we let's jump on another long haul flight hey guys my name's lachlan i'm a listener from canberra australia loving the pod so far um, my question concerns the With You RNF team um, and their switch to Aprilia. Do we think there will there will be an, um, a stronger push from Dovi or Darren Binder to stay at the team, or do we think they're looking elsewhere for more viable long term options? Um, and if Darren Binder does go, uh, where does he go? Does he go back to Moto Two, or is there someone else willing to take take a punt on him? Um, love your work and cheers. Uh, thank you, Lachlan. Um, we think Dovi's going. We think this is. Andrea Davisioso's final MotoGP season, he does not sound particularly keen to put himself through through the ringer again if the best he can hope for is like 11th, 10th. Like he'd probably be better in an Aprilia than the current Yamaha, but would he be better enough to warrant doing another season? It does not sound like that's that's how he feels. So expect Dovi to go. I think Darren Binder would very much like to stay within RNF and He's made a decent case for it. Like he really has, but there's gonna be a lot of pretty strong riders vying for for those two bikes, I think. So if if I were a bet man, and I'm not, but if I were, I'd I think Darren heads back to Moto Two. Thank you, Lachlan. Uh as we go from Australia, let's go to a slightly smaller island now, shall we? <laughs> Hi, my name's Mia. I'm from the Isle of Man. My stepdad and I are big fans of the podcast, and we're hoping to see a MotoGP race next year. So my question is, what's your favourite track to go to and why? Thank you. Hey, Mia. Um, nice to hear a listener from the Isle of Man. I arrived back from the Isle of Man like 24 hours ago. Um... This is something that has changed a bit for me over the years because the number one, like if you were European and you wanted to go to a MotoGP race, the obvious answer for years and years and years was Brno. Um, it was such a great venue, such a great location, um, and it, it always stood out. Uh, Mugello was also another one that I would have always recommended, but what we saw at Mugello this year was so far away from 
what we used to love about Mugello, that it's it's kind of hard to recommend it. So uh, I would say for me, go to the Red Bull Ring, go to Austria. It's a it's a beautiful location. It's great food. It's a spectacular venue. Uh, you can have a there's a good party in the campsites. And it's not terribly difficult to get to because you're a, a sort of a, a two-hour flight from Vienna. And then from Vienna, it's like a two-hour drive. Or you can get the train if you're relying on public transport. And if you're looking for a cheap hotel, stay in Graz. It's about 45 minutes away, but it's it's not too difficult to get to. Um, or alternatively, uh, my because the price of hire cars have gone through the roof at the minute, my mum is actually going to Austria this year because she's a MotoGP fan as well. And she's flying into Vienna and hiring a motorhome, which is the same price as her hire car. And it gives her accommodation for the week. So there's lots of ways to do it. Um, but yeah, that that's probably my go-to recommendation these days. M- myself and a colleague uh, also, you know, did public transport to the red bull ring for work not 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 for for a fan experience but it, it was clear it was a both a, a pretty accessible track and just a, amazing facilities amazing sites just it's it's world-class that is a world-class venue it might not be perfect for MotoGP in terms of like racing or track layout but as a circuit uh, it's it's wonderful um Mizano, i'd highly recommend because of what's around it maybe even not really thinking so much as the track itself, but it's just, it's a really pleasant place to be in. Like, it's just very, very nice. And for an adventurer, I had a blast doing Thailand, again, as a journalist, but I, I don't think there's that that big of a difference. It's just, it's, it's like a proper adventure. It's very, apart from the plane tickets, which will cost you, but the rest of it is very affordable. And it's, it's quite something. It really is quite something. And it's it's both very far away from Bangkok and yet in a it's so far away that you you take a tra- overnight train and you sleep and suddenly you're there and you've had the best sleep of your life. And then you get to have a bunch of uh, locals uh, drive you around on motorbikes. It's great wonderful yeah yeah someone's right i mean the Mugello experience was the one to go to a lot of people went to Brno. there's a local airport there but they're not quite the same uh Hareth, uh i'm going to plumb for in in europe as well because it is just such an experience there'll always be a, a spaniard at the forefront of mother gp in some shape or form and although they're a bit creative with the numbers that came through the gate the atmosphere you could feel it on race day morning absolutely fantastic um the Mizano one's a good call it's right by the coast it's right by the town you can get a bus you can get a train you can almost taxi it walk it it's it's absolutely easy uh, if you're gonna go a bit further afield this is a bit of a far out one but the whole thing about Japan I just love um going to Mategi you can actually buy paddock tickets at Mategi rather than you have to get a paddock ticket off a team or you have to be a a journalist or whatever uh, and that year used to certainly be the case in Laguna Seca as well um, I mean every time I went to Laguna I used to stand there and think am I really here uh, it was it was a great experience but likewise I'd have the same feeling on race day morning at Jerez and Mugello uh, as long as the sun's shining it doesn't matter where you are in the world I love Saxon Ring as well. I just I just like that part of the world. I absolutely agree with you, Simon, about Red Bull Ring. But then again, it all boils down to what one of the circuit guys said to me one Sunday evening there. Torby, it makes a difference when you run circuit and you run Grand Prix when you do not have to make profit. 
and the, you wonder why the facilities in the spectator areas are just second to none. So, uh, yeah, lots of choice there, Mia. And uh, write in and let us know which circuit you will go to as well. Thank you. Next up, let's go into MotoGP Heartland, shall we? Hi there, this is Miguel from Madrid, in Spain. And I have a, a couple of questions. Well, it's more of one question and a half, but it is. Um, are we being too hard on Paul Espargaro? I mean, he's such a hard worker, and I would say that if we take apart Mark, he's bringing better results than the average. I think that it is difficult to quantify what percentage is the manufacturer's fault and what is Paul. So what do you think about that? And also, like, now Mir is something like very likely to go to the Honda. I don't know if that is a better chance. I mean, Honda is totally lost. So this is like my second question. Uh, how can a factory as powerful as Honda get this lost? I mean, they have a good budget and a powerful team of engineers. But since Mark left because of his injury problems, I think they got totally lost and they still are so i don't know what are your your thoughts about that uh, thanks a lot and awesome podcast love it hey miguel uh sounds like you have a, a proper madrid accent very recognizable so that's that's really cool um to answer your question i think i don't think we've been too hard on paul because it is a direct consequence of having rated paul so very high from his ktm days he was very, very good on the KTM, and there was a general expectation, I think from Honda too, when Honda hired him, that he's one of the very, very few guys that can make that bike work. And it, it hasn't worked for him, and then they redid it a bit, and it still hasn't, hasn't really worked for him. So, have we been too hard? I, I, don't, I don't think so, because, and it's not... I don't think we're denigrating Paul so much because, again, at, at his peak, he's an excellent MotoGP rider and one who really should have been a race winner by this point. But I think it's just he's a victim of, in, in my case, definitely very lofty expectations because I think he's, he's capable of so much more than he showed in this year and a half at Honda so far. Yeah, I, I, that's fair. Um, on the, the other side of the question with Mir heading there, I think that the fundamental difference is perhaps that Mir's riding style is totally different from Paul's. He likes a bike that works like Mark Marquez's. He is a, a demon late breaker. Um, and I think if he ends up in the Honda next year, he's actually going to show some real ability on it. Um, I, I've said that for a while that I think that as long as he isn't completely sort of overshadowed by being Mark Marquez's teammate, which is a, a thing that happens, um, he wouldn't surprise me if he's a championship contender once he gets his head around the bike. And because he's almost got a riding style that <clears throat> doesn't fit the the Suzuki he's on at the minute, I, I think his natural riding style is much more V4 motorbike. So I think it's not going to take him as long to adapt as it has someone like Maverick Vinales who's had to go um, the same direction. HRC can get lost. They've got lost in the past, Miguel. They got lost as they went into the 800cc era. Uh, they got massively lost. And it took 
them to hire another rider to enable them to win a championship in the shape of of Casey Stoner. I suppose the other thing is we always look at HRC, or at least I do, and go, oh, well, they've always got to be at the top because they're HRC. It's a predetermined chip in one's mind that HRC have got to be at the top. Ducati, I suppose, are not far off. And then the rest, of course, they have to they have to deliver so far as, as race wins and championships and, and such like. But I mean, it's a question for you, Simon and Val. You know, you always want to expect HRC to be at the top. And if they're if they're fourth and fifth, well, that's a disaster. Well, that wouldn't be a disaster for Aprilia a year ago. <laughs> so, yeah, they can get lost. Uh, how they're going to get out of it, they just realized that the golden goose was Mark. And they've got to somehow engineer themselves out of it. How are they going to do it? Well, that's not for me to say. I think I think they they tell their collective soul for a fourth and fifth right now. Good point. Good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Okay, gracias, Miguel. Okay, let's go to a new continent that we haven't heard from so far in this podcast. Hi, speaking to Scott from South Africa. Um, I'm a big fan of the show. I just wanted to ask what your views are regarding race day. Um, coverage um, regarding the race because um, it's probably a topic that's been addressed before but I would just um, like clarity on who gets coverage during the race because you know I found especially this last race it was uh, the camera was just pretty much on Quattararo in front and maybe the top six uh, riders but um, even just the top three and um, you know they neglect all the middle riders and the rookies and you pretty much have to just follow them on the times um, so you never know what's really happening there and um, I just find it very odd um, how you can follow just the top four or five riders um, and it was extremely boring last race to be honest because um, Quattararo just led for such a, a gap that he was just driving around in circles and um yeah, I just, I just thought it's something that they're missing out on, you know, um, especially from a South African point of view. Um, we're not watching, we're not seeing anything that Darren or um, Brad is doing, and even if a few Australian, you know, you're missing out on Jack and Remy. Um, and I just find it weird how they draw in any new um, viewers to sites, unless you're maybe... Um, French or Italian or Spanish and you solely support Quattararo or um, Elaish or the top guys. Yeah, thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you, Scott. Um, if I could pick that one up first, thanks for your question about the TV coverage. Uh, well, where to start? Some races are less interesting. Uh, there's nothing worse than being all hyped up and ready for the start of the race on top of the hour and you get 20 minutes in and you think you've been watching an endurance race. Sometimes it just falls that way. Regarding what pictures are shown on your television, they are chosen by international feed. So the international program feed is done by Dorna. Dorna own the commercial rights and television rights of the championship. And it's a massive operation. TV is king. TV gets the sponsors in. And without the sponsors, well, we'd struggle to go racing at all. So it's it's that simple. Regarding the journalistic choice of the director as to what he shows as the race progresses, that is a thankless task. But 
I defend what Dorna do most of the time, 99.9% of the time on the TV. It is a, if you walk into the TV truck, there is proverbial, you know, 45 screens all over the place. And they've got to choose which one, which 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 TV shot is then going to be shown on your television screen, and that's not easy when there's multiple battles going on, maybe an accident in seventh position, there's a battle for the lead and such like. With regards to only staying on a rider like Quattararo, that's great for the French, but as you've mentioned, it's not so much fun for you because you want to see how the binders are getting on. What Formula One do is that they have different feeds. So they have a French feed that would concentrate on the French team or the French. And there's an Italian feed that concentrates on Ferrari a bit more than maybe the British feed or the English speaking feed, which concentrates on a Lewis Hamilton kind of slant and such like. That ability, I don't believe, is available yet for MotoGP, but it will be something coming down the line how there's lots of there's lots of skills in life i'm in awe of but how they pick the right pitches at the right time is 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 genius for me but what they do do is that they look the night before at the race from the year before all the major tv directors and they'll watch it on a big screen and they'll say, why did you do that? Did you do that? Maybe we'll hold that shot a bit longer for tomorrow. And then even on Sunday night, they'll be analysing it themselves. I think it's great TV coverage personally, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's a thankless task at times. But fair play to what they do. So I see two principal problems in terms of the approach. And not problems as in something's being done wrong, but maybe problems as factors to consider. First one being is MotoGP used to be a lot more top-heavy than it is now. So right now, it's just it's just a much closer championship with the various protagonists and newsmakers being all over the grid, rather than there being you know Valentino Rossi, Valentino Rossi's teammate, and then a bunch of bunched together satellite year old bikes thirty seconds back. Not that they didn't deserve coverage, but you know what I mean. It's 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 changed a little bit in terms of the storylines. And the second one is, unfortunately, the races by major motorsport event standards not unfortunately because it's part of the selling point but unfortunately in this case they're quite short so out front there's less dead air in terms of happening that wasn't the case last time out because Carhartt dominated but generally there's just less dead air to focus on some of the midfield fights that are very very interesting in a way that's good for us the written media because we then get to pick up those stories that have gone undercovered by the tv I th- but I, I do think it's a shame that they're undercovered and there's there's one thing that's a definite problem and something that's being done wrong is very often there are incidents that you just do not see on TV that like either the bike didn't have an onboard camera or there was no camera shot at that point. Like remember the Rins Nakagami crash that Rins was so angry about, not the most recent one, but the one before that. I mean, it's crazy that we only saw that because Rins posted a CCTV clip, right? That's that's a crash involving a potential title contender. I guess not anymore, but you know. And we didn't we didn't see that in the race at all. We didn't know what happened until he talked about it later on. You can't do TV coverage of your major motorsport championship like that. You have to figure out a way to to provide those shots, either with onboards or with more cameras. Yeah. Um, I I think you're completely right, Val. There needs to be a way that we're, because things are so competitive at the minute, there needs to be a way that 
every corner of every track is always on camera at all times. If that means doing things like upgrading the, you know, so every track has CCTV cameras that race control can view. If there's a way to upgrade those so that they're still fixed cameras, but they've got a higher resolution so that at least we can cut to them if something happens, that would be uh, that would be an improvement. But for me, the, the biggest failing of the MotoGP TV coverage is not the lack of action that they show, but the amount of time they devote to showing not action. Um, I don't get why we have to see a shot of the crowd as the winner comes across the line. I don't get why we want why we see pit boxes with teams celebrating whenever there's a battle for second going on just behind. Um, I don't get why we see endless shots of Julio Marquez, Mark and Alex's dad in the garage, biting his fingernails all the way through the race. Um, I get that there was a time when that was the way things were done. And I, I understand that, you know, especially in longer races, it makes sense. But I think that MotoGP at the minute is remarkably so cut and thrust, so competitive, so close that there's there's always a moment of action on track that you can be showing. Um, and I would rather see that than the, the cutaway shots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a, a, a small glitch. Uh, the... Um the onboard cameras, the butt cam, the um, the level cam, and the technology that they've got, I think is 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 very good. And uh, and also, when I was in the TV commentary booth, if I thought of something, I could go and have a chat with them, and they'd listen to you, and they'd go, okay, yeah, okay, we, they we, we, they wouldn't be dismissed out of hand, kind of thing. But fair play, there's, there's a lot going on, but it is the the core income for the championship is the television rights so they do on balance uh, a great job in my view at least so uh, scott i hope that that has answered your question and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct tv satellite free you see this a family watching baseball on direct tv with no satellite dish in sight let's heckle them you call that changing the channel choke up on the remote buddy i hope getting all these games on direct tv makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds direct tv has the most mlb games visit directtv.com claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher availability of rsns varies by zip code and package high-speed internet service required terms and restrictions apply Mabuhay! Hi guys, this is Sheen from the Philippines. I just want to ask, um, given current, given the current results of Franco Morbidelli in the factory, Yamaha, do you really think the Lynn Jarvis will be keen to to keep him by 2023? And do you do you still have uh, news on the Raul Fernandez Yamaha uh, possible tie-up? Thanks, big fan. Uh, stay safe. Thank you, Sheen. I don't know whether or not that was the C that we could hear in the background. Let's uh, let's just hope that it was. Val. Yeah. So from from everything that's come out of Yamaha over the past couple of weeks, that despite Frankie clearly not living up to the expe- to expectations so far in 2022, um, there is no there. It's not clear whether there's a mechanism. But even if there was a mechanism, there's no push to replace him or anything like that. Like they're gonna. They're going to stick with him at least for 2023. Uh, on current form, I really don't love his chances beyond uh, 2023. And the Raul Fernandez thing, it's obviously the interest is longstanding, but now that there's no satellite team and probably based on Raul's first year in MotoGP so far, no conviction that he's definitely going to be an upgrade 
so that he's definitely worth paying what is presumably a really, really big penalty to get Morbidelli out of the lineup to bring in somebody who might not very well be an upgrade right now doesn't doesn't sound too appealing. So yeah, I, I can't see anything but Morbidelli staying for, for 2023. Uh, let's hope by then that he's figured it out because it, it's been a, a really weird and really disappointing year. So the, there's two things about the Morbidelli situation for me. One is that let's not forget that his contract is written and crafted by VR46, um, by Valentino Rossi, who is his manager. And there is talk still that Yamaha are potentially interested in getting them to be their new satellite partner now that the RNF with you thing has fallen away. So for one, that contract is going to be very, very airtight because it was written by Valentino Rossi's crew. And for two, Yamaha aren't really going to want to annoy VR46 too much. So um, that side of it, I would imagine, is fairly secure. On the the other side, I just, I wonder if... So we've we've heard racers over and over and over and over and over again tell us that they're absolutely fine after an injury when the reality is that they're not. We most recently saw it with Mark Marquez, who told us that he didn't need surgery on a Thursday and told us on a Saturday that he was going to miss the rest of the season because of surgery. Um, I wonder if Yamaha know a bit more about what's going on with Morbidelli and his knee than we do. And if they're aware that that means that he just needs a bit more time to, to sort of fully recover and get back to, you know, the level that we saw him in 2020 when he finished runner-up in the championship. We will see. We will see. Uh, it's um, going to shake out over the next couple of months or so. Okay, next up, we've got two questions back-to-back. First one from Andrew, second one from Parva. Hi guys, so my name is Andrew. I'm from North Down in Ireland. Um, just here to ask a question about the spectacle of MotoGP. Um, we've obviously heard some comments from the riders recently about how they find it difficult to follow each other and as a result overtaking has become more and more difficult. Um, the question I have really is do the bikes uh, need to be slowed down? Um, obviously, yes. While it's we want to see lap records broken, we want to see um, you know, a comp, you know, new speeds reached and so on. Um, is this actually harming the spectacle by the bikes being so fast? Uh, we saw in F one um with the rule changes for twenty seventeen that overtaking dramatically reduced, and whenever they slowed the cars down for twenty twenty two, um with new rules, um they were able to follow each other a lot more closely. Um, does MotoGP uh, need the same thing to happen to it? In your opinion? Hi guys, I am Parva from India. I am a big fan of MotoGP and Formula One. In Formula 1, an aerodynamic package can literally make or break the season of a team. Aerodynamics provide great performance gains but bad racing in terms of overtakes and entertainment. Is MotoGP also heading towards that direction where overtakes become scarce and aerodynamics become very important part of a team's package given its increasing interest in aerodynamics? What are your views and what changes would you make if you are on the decision-making panel? Thank you. Thank you, Parva. If I could pick up with your question first. Um, aerodynamics for a Formula One car are huge. Uh, it is an aeroplane wing the wrong way up. Uh, it's it's about huge downforce. Uh, it can produce more downforce than its own weight at probably half the speed that it can actually do. 
100 miles an hour or so it could stick to the ceiling if not less speed it could actually stick to the ceiling in the middle of a tunnel they'll do that one day it'll be a red bull stunt won't it um whereas with a motorcycle you don't get the ground effect there is no negative not as much negative pressure underneath a moto gp bike than there is obviously a formula one car with a huge uh, great floor which produces negative pressure and negative pressure means it sucks to the floor um there is obviously talk at the moment that aerodynamic appendages to motor gp bike are creating a harder uh, they're creating a less of a show shall i say because it's harder for the riders to overtake we've heard more and more riders say of late they want to overtake quickly at the beginning of the race and then it'll all settle down because they don't have the opportunity to get back through again um, it is what it is you cannot uninvent technology though so drifting into what you say andrew the first question of those two together um you can't uninvent it and just making things slower doesn't necessarily mean that it will be a better show they made 990 cc bikes 800s and what the 800s were were faster around the corners and you had to rag it more and then there were more high sides even with the technology that was available with tc so it's it's not an easy fix unless we all go scooter racing and you can still hurt yourself on a scooter for me the the biggest issue for me is that aerodynamics are creating uh i think they're going to end up creating disparity between the field as some people spend more money to invest and others don't um we've worked so hard to balance the rules to the point where you can be competitive in MotoGP on a relatively low budget um suzuki and aprilia are probably spending a quarter of what some of the other factories are spending but Aero is the place where money can be spent because it traditionally hasn't. So there's a lot of catching up to do. Um, and that worries me to an extent because I don't want to see a return to the old us and them championship. Um, the other thing is that it forces manufacturers to walk away. But I think that what we're seeing at the minute with races becoming quite tedious to watch sometimes um, and a real lack of sort of last corner fights like we saw even as recently as 17, 18, 19, it has nothing to do with aerodynamics because we had wings back then and, and they're all to do with the ride height devices. Um, I think if there's a, a change that can be made for the good of the sport, it's banning ride height devices tomorrow, front and rear. Yep, I, I, I agree that I'd, I'd be perfectly happy to see the ride height devices gone immediately. Don't really see what they add in any tangible way aerodynamics i'm a bit more lukewarm on certainly i think it's slightly overblown how bad the current MotoGP racing is it's not it's not an f1 2017 situation like f1 2017 with the amount of aero and the the amount of speed they took through corners that the racing there was borderline unwatchable it just you know there's 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 no overtaking but the the cars can't even get close to one another in MotoGP at least you can still get close you can't follow close for too long because your front tire will overheat but there is racing the racing still exists so we're not in a crisis yet but obviously without strict control and strict oversight we might get to a place where we don't really want to be so it's it's definitely one to very closely monitor and and yeah the right height devices can buzz off and as for slowing them down, I mean, I don't know if that impacts the racing, but I just do it. Like, they're just a bit too fast for my fast for my comfort at Mugello on the main straight. Don't think that's particularly necessary or good, except for the 
the headline or two. Yeah, the 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 thing with slowing them down is that if we don't slow down the bike sooner rather than later, we're going to lose some of the traditional circuits on the calendar, like Mugello, like Jerez, places that just don't have enough runoff and can't be altered to create more. So we, we are outgrowing circuits. We don't want the entire championship to be new build tilkadromes like Coda. So uh, something will be done eventually, but it has to be done carefully because we tried it before with 800cc bikes and they turned into rev monsters with insane corner speed that high-sided riders to the moon and turned out to be more dangerous than, than the predecessors. So it has to be done carefully, but it can be done. Mm-hmm. And it probably should. It's a double-edged sword about the speed down the straight at Mugello Val. You know, it, you stand there, you see the coverage, you're in the grandstands, you're on the hillsides, and it is just like, holy smoke, that is quite something. 215 mile an hour, for the slowest guy in the race, 225.9 miles an hour, for the quickest guy in the race this year. It is proper gladiatorial stuff. But 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 what percentage of fans can tell the difference between three thirty and three sixty with an untrained? You're you're absolutely right. I was just about to say that. I was just about to say that. But you know, I always say the biggest accident poor old Randy Mamola had was on a scooter. You know, if you're doing two twenty or you're doing one eight five. I don't really want to jump out of a car door wearing the full leathers with my Dainese airbag, Alpine Stars airbag, already inflated at 60 miles an hour. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you can still have some pretty terrifying accidents at a slow speed. Um, having said that, Mark Marquez did crash at Mugello in his first year, 2013, and he hit the ground at 209 off the data of his Alpine Stars at Mugello. And he raced on Sunday and very nearly got a podium until, ironically, he fell off again down the hill. But um, it it is a fine line. Knocking 10, 15, 20 mile an hour off the top speed isn't necessarily going to be still safe. And let's not forget that while Mark did get away with it, Michele Pirro had a huge one there that it turns out we only learned afterwards, really, was a really massive crash. Like it, it, I think it was kind of not reported in full at the time how big the injuries were from that mm. and how long they hampered him, but he had a massive one there. That's the one that they go, he got knocked out upon landing and was yeah, ragdolling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The one with the, the one with where the, where the brake pads knocked back and he went into yeah. it with no brakes. Yeah, it's, uh, mm. yeah. Mm. And yeah, and yet it is, it is ultimately inherently dangerous and, and, and that's the, that's the fine line. Yeah, it's, but but there has to be. We have to remove. We have to remove whatever dangers we can remove. It's dangerous enough without having walls that riders hit every time they crash at a corner because it's too close. It it doesn't need to be more dangerous than it needs to be. Th- then it's always going to be. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Parva. Uh, next up, let's go to Yorkshire here in the UK. Hi, this is George from York in the north of England. Um, I recently saw a picture from Magello of Lorenzo Salvadori trialling something which looked like a rear wing on the back of his Aprilia. Um, I'm used to watching Formula One and IndyCar where it's common to use tools like Flovis Paint and AeroVakes as a way to gather data about the aerodynamics, but I've never seen these used in MotoGP. My question is simply, how do the MotoGP teams gather data about the aerodynamics to evaluate the developments to the bikes? Cheers. So, good question. Um, and 
it's something that teams tend to still be quite secretive about because we're so far behind on Arrow versus things like IndyCar and F1, the teams are still working out ways to test it, let alone ways to successfully use it. Um, what we've seen or what we know is that the teams do an awful lot of their development not actually on track, but using uh, CFT, computational fluid modeling, because the airflow on a motorbike is so different from the airflow in a car because the airflow in a car is pretty much always straight on. The airflow in a motorbike is affected by lean angle and by rider body position, which which creates huge changes, absolutely massive changes. So what we've seen is, is teams do an awful lot of their work in computers. They do a very limited amount of work in a wind tunnel because wind tunnels aren't actually that helpful for this sort of stuff. And then we see them making prototypes, bringing them to the track and trying them. Um, they do some stuff around, uh, you see occasionally Aprilia still run pitot tubes, um, which are for measuring airflow. Um, but they're pretty much the only ones that do do that on a race weekend. Um, I would imagine others are doing it behind closed doors. I've never seen Flovis paint a MotoGP bike. And I think that's, again, that's because of, of rider body position. Just, you know, if you imagine you've got a, a wind flow head on, <clears throat> and that will create something in the flow of his paint. Then the bike leans over and the rider falls off the side or hangs off the side. That changes the whole airflow and then the flow of his paint moves and it's basically useless. So it's much more complicated than it is in a car. The Formula One teams, they do factor in the fact that the air is not coming dead square all of the time. BAR Honda at Brackley in the UK, they had a rolling road wind tunnel where it would move the angle of attack so that the air would be coming to just slightly towards the side of the cars if the car was turning a corner. Um, so that's they are ahead of that some years ago. When was this? BAR started in 1999. Uh, regarding... Simon, if I could correct you, regarding wind tunnel stuff, there's a lot of work still done by Ducati in the wind tunnel, and it really got pushed and started by Alan Jenkins 15 years ago, even maybe 20 years ago now. Uh, former Formula One guy, then went to Ducati. Uh, I went to his house once, he's near Silverstone, and he's got one of those big box trailers, and he opened it, and it was full, and I mean full, of Ducati World Superbike uh, fairings and uh, mannequins, kind of dummies, that had Foggy's leathers on. <laughs> In the middle of the British countryside, there was this just raft of stuff. But one of the things I always remember him telling me when he would go to the wind tunnel with Stoner, with Nicky Hayden, with Valentino, uh, sit straight on the bike. But I am. Sit straight on the bike. But I am. And he'd go and take a picture of them. And their backside would be, pick a figure, you know, two inches, five centimetres, three inches, seven and a half centimetres over to one side. So I think it was Valentino. He said, can you please sit over to the right and then you'll be square in the middle going down the straight, which is a long time at Catalonia, Mugello, Cota and such like. So there was still a lot of work done there. That, of course, was an independent wind tunnel. Ducati don't have their own. Uh, it was in Italy, um, and like many other Formula One teams and motor racing people, there are wind tunnels for hire around the world. Yeah, there's a huge wind tunnel in Cologne, owned by the the sort of the Toyota Le Mans project that Aprilia use a lot, 
Um, I know that that's yeah. their their number one. Um, I have heard a story. McLaren, McLaren used that as well. Right. McLaren used that because they're building their own at the moment. Ah, gotcha. I have heard a story about uh, an unnamed rider who used to be on a satellite bike for a factory, t- a Japanese factory, who got sent to the wind tunnel, was told to sit, was, was shown a, a Japanese test rider who was about five foot one sitting in the bike and was showing the, the airflow over this tiny little Japanese rider and then put on the bike and told, okay, you can leave whenever your body position on the straight means you've got the same drag coefficient as him. And they spent all day adjusting foot pegs and body position and working with leathers and helmets and boots to try and get it just right. So there is, there's a lot of wind tunnel stuff done in terms of straight line stuff. But I'm not, not entirely sure how much is done in terms of building new wings and, and stuff like that. I've got nothing particularly useful to add other than I'm, I've been getting a kick for the past three minutes imagining a MotoGP bike and a rider with F1 style aero rakes trying to take a corner <laughs> and snapping them all off off the curb or something like that. It's just great stuff. Just yeah. love love imagining that. Yeah. One of the other things that Jenkins would tell me about Ducati and World Superbike was uh, Fogarty was convinced that he didn't get the best engines because his his top speed would be a couple of kilometers down on say Frankie Keeley, but Frankie Keeley Keeley had a longer back. So there was less drag around the small of his back the, than than Carl Fogarty. Uh, Casey Stoner had a very long back, so he was he was almost as Alan said the perfect shape. It would come over the screen, over his crash helmet, over the the bulge on the top of his leathers, on the back of his leathers, and then it would just fade away over the tail section and away. Marcus Simoncelli too big for an eight hundred cc Honda, of course. Um, so there is there is there is a bit of uh, god in all of this and and how big you are and what size you are are you long-limbed are you long-backed and it can give you another four or five kilometers an hour down the straight which uh, you'd pay real money for in the engine department otherwise wouldn't you so yeah horses for courses horses for courses george okay now we've got our final question and let's just listen in hello this is simon from sunny south wales I've been thinking recently about the current length of the MotoGP calendar. I don't think it's going to get shorter anytime soon. And the possible need to protect riders from themselves when it comes to riding injured. I'm thinking specifically of Alex Marquez at Barcelona, for instance. Do you think there's any merit in the idea that a rider would remove their two worst results from the championship standings at the end of the year? And do you think that may stop them... Possibly not, but it may stop the teams from allowing them to force themselves to the start line each and every race, regardless of the consequences, which seem to be built into their DNA. Uh, Yeah, just wondered what your thoughts would be on that, please, guys. So, um, first things first, yeah, the current calendar is far too long. Um, I think that we're losing some of the spectacle by trying to cram in races, and I think that we're plowing riders through the ringer i think that there's pretty much everyone has some injury or other at the minute that they're nursing just because there's no time to rest but i don't think i i like your idea simon i should say i like the idea of being able to drop a round or two um depending on your results but i don't think it would stop a rider from riding when they were injured because 
they'd always think, oh, well, maybe I can score one or two points and then if I crash, I can drop a zero. You know, it, it wouldn't solve the problem unless perhaps you uh, you made it so that you could only delete the result on a Saturday. Maybe if, if you had to set out, if you could elect to have one round to set out, then that would, uh, you know, that would, would work. But... I don't see a way that, that you're going to stop a net rider. But the obvious solution is that it, it should be addressed at a level above the riders. It's it's like all the questions of, should we go to Superpole to fix uh, Moto3 touring? No, because we should have rules that are enforced properly that solve the problem rather than having to change the format because no one will enforce the rules. Let's make the medical team actually enforce the protocols that they're supposed to follow let's make it stricter so that riders have to wait longer after surgery after concussions after things like that let's do that instead and make the sport safer rather than um giving them a free pass essentially i i I agree completely with with many of that i i i just like to say that i love the outside of the box thinking of drop scores simon but also everyone in racing hates drop scores they suck they make title could title deciders really confusing to follow and two dropped scores wouldn't i don't think they'd make it a difference because everybody basically has more than two like the 90 percent of the grid will not score in more than two races so every race will still count for them if you made it like almost half of the scores being dropped then there might be an impact but even then riders don't just race for points or results they often race for their own reputations you could drop all of Alex Marcus's scores this season and he'd still absolutely be riding that day because his LCR Honda ride is on the line and he has to prove to the team that he can do it. Even if we take outside the whatever manufacturer team pressures of riding for a result or whatever, every rider has feels that this Sunday will be their opportunity to add to their CV and to, to make that next contract, I think. Almost every rider. Enough riders to where it's a factor. Um, and as for as for the injury, like I personally, and I, I know I'm very much alone in that, often alone in that, because there's a very favored refrain in racing and in motorcycle racing that they're all big boys and they know how much how much strain they put their bodies under and that they know when they can ride and they can't ride. And you know, that's I that's partly fair enough, but at the same time I get absolutely no joy from seeing somebody have to grit their teeth for three points with I don't know, fractured count collarbone or whatever they're they're riding with. So I just love to see just just yeah, just stricter. Just go stricter. Just say you have a you have a fracture of some sort, you don't ride. You sit at home. We have enough riders to make up our, our grid. I know people will say, well, that way the whole grid will be depleted. I've seen that very argument on Twitter. I don't think so. But hey, look, it, it's some it's it's a thing where ex riders in particular have a very different opinion on that because they they believe and many believe that riders should have the right to push their bodies even when their bodies are already hurt. And I don't. There's no right or wrong answer, but that's just how I feel. I I get no joy from that. Racers are wired up to race. You know, we all agree that if they've got the opportunity to put the crash helmet on, they're going to do it. And you can't blame them for that. That's what they've been brought up to do, just as we've been brought up to do things in our lives. We, we're going to do it. So it's a fine line. Absolutely right. 
drop scores, you get to the end of the season. Well, he's leading the championship, but he's not actually because he's at a and the person it's a bit like those aggregate races. The bloke leading the race isn't gonna win it. What? Yeah. How to alienate people. So and confuse even the hardcore. So it's it's a, unfortunately it's um a difficult one. So the one thing how I would go about deciding this is it just it goes back to the same point. I want to see a writer's union and I want to see collective bargaining. And I want to see the writer's union decide also on that on you know with consultation from medical professionals of course but i want to see writers union play a part in deciding what the threshold for participation is maybe they set it a bit too high for my liking but i at least you know i think that should be part of the collective bargaining and there should be some provisions to where writers feel more secure about not writing because they have a union they feel more secure about being able not to write and not fear about the potential repercussions on their careers. But I don't know. You know, that's that's how I see it. Thank you so much for all of your questions that you've sent in to podcasts at the-race.com. The questions that you've recorded from all around the world. We've had questions from Romania, Moscow, Perth, Australia, Louisiana, Bulgaria, Daytona Beach, Canberra, Alaman, Madrid, South Africa, Philippines, Northern Ireland, India... Yorkshire and Wales. What a spread and uh, what different questions as well. Thank you so much. Do continue to send your questions in and we will answer them at our next non, as it were, MotoGP week. But it's MotoGP week this week. It is the German Grand Prix at the Saxon Ring. Come Sunday evening, it's the halfway point in MotoGP Championship for 2022. 11 races still to go, nine have gone. Thank you for tuning in. Keep in touch with all of your MotoGP news at the-race.com. From Val, Simon and myself, Toby, take care, speak to you soon. The Athletic.